as you're getting into your chairs there, if you turn in your copy of the scriptures to 2 Timothy chapter 2. I'd like to back up just a little bit uh, to get some momentum into this passage that we're going to be studying this morning. He speaks about what has gone before. Chapter 2, verse 1 of 2 Timothy reads, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. You therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. And also, if anyone competes in athletics, he is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. The hard-working farmer must be first to partake of the crops. Consider what I say, and may the Lord give you understanding in all things. Remember that Jesus Christ, of the seed of David, was raised from the dead, according to my gospel, for which I suffer trouble as an evildoer, even to the point of chains. But the word of God is not chained. Therefore, I endure all things for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. This is a faithful saying. For if we died with Him, we shall also live with Him. If we endure, we shall also reign with Him. If we deny Him, He also will deny us. If we are faithless, He remains faithful. He cannot deny Himself. Remind them of these things. Timothy, remind them of these things. Let's pray as we begin to study. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning and we ask for your spirit to bless and open our hearts and minds to understand your word. Lord, that you would speak to us and reveal yourself to us. Some of these, these passages today are academic in some way. Some of them are, are very practical. Uh, Lord, we need you to be able to understand this. We want to be different. We want to be more like you. We want to make you known. So we ask you to equip us, Father. Please push me out of the way. May your spirit speak. May you be glorified this morning. Lord, I, we need you. We need you more perhaps than, than has ever been needed. Thank you that we are in your presence. In Jesus' name, amen. Remind them of these things. It's a warning of spiritual ruin. A warning of spiritual ruin. From his suffering in the Roman death row dungeon, awaiting imminent execution, Paul pens this letter. And he commands Timothy. And Timothy, who himself is in the midst of a raging spiritual war in the church in Ephesus, in 2 Timothy 2, verse 8, he commands Timothy to remember. Remember what? What do you remember when you're sitting on the floor of a stone cell in almost utter darkness waiting for the executioners to come and remove your head from your body? What do you remember when you're on the front lines of a spiritual battle when everything seems to be against you? Even the elders and the leaders that at one time you ministered with. What do you remember? What is Paul saying? He's saying very succinctly, remember 
Jesus Christ. Remember Jesus Christ. Remember Jesus Christ who was born of King David. Now that may seem somewhat odd for us, but it is so important to understand this. The fact that he was born of David tells us at least two things. One is that he was the fulfillment of the long-awaited Messiah, the fulfillment of the covenant with David, that the Messiah would come from the loins of David. This Jesus Christ. Secondly, that Jesus was, from the, was born of King David tells us that he was proven to be a man. Jesus Christ, God incarnate, God in the flesh. Jesus Christ was a man. Because he was not only God, but also fully man, Jesus was man's mediator to God the Father. He could come on our behalf. He could place, as it were in the scriptures, a hand on man, being man, and reach with hand to God, being God. The most unique individual that was ever on this planet. And secondly, not only was he born of the seed of David, but he was raised from the dead. And we've heard that, many of us, all our lives. And it loses some of its... Of its mind-boggling, earth-shattering, unexplainable power. This Jesus was raised from the dead. And we talked about last week, this shows us at least three things. One is that it confirmed that Jesus is truly God. Death could not withhold Him. He had the power to conquer death. He has the power to give life. When we go through and we see some of these tragic things going on us around us, We do not know why and how at times, but we know that God controls death and God controls life. And we minister in the midst of those things. But He is the giver of life. He is the giver of death. And He is God. Secondly, His resurrection confirmed that our sin was paid in full. Romans chapter 4 tells us that we were raised by His justification. For His justification, we He was raised for our justification, excuse me. His being raised from the dead confirmed that the payment of sin was complete. And thirdly, His resurrection was a guarantee of our own resurrection. We will be resurrected like He was if we have been joined in faith. In verses 8 through 13, Paul exhorted Timothy, more than anything, brother, endure. Endure and suffer for Christ. Paul could speak. He was a man with much experience in this. But now he warns Timothy. He warns Timothy in these passages this morning of grave danger that could absolutely destroy and overthrow the people of Timothy's church. Paul knew several years earlier that this was going to come to that church. In his parting words to the elders from Ephesus in Acts chapter 20, he prophesied saying, Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which He purchased with His own blood. Now listen to what he says. For I know this, that after my departure savage wolves will come in among you not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Paul knew this was coming, what Timothy is facing right now. He knew that there would be attacks from without, but perhaps the hardest 
would be the attacks that would come from within. The, only, the same men that he had preached with, preached alongside, prayed with, they would rise up and become adversaries, trying to draw, draw people away from the gospel of Jesus Christ. This spiritual war has exploded. Timothy, in the face of this, you must remind your people. Remind them. Remind them what I have written in these letters and what I have taught you through our years of ministry. Then, remind them again. And again. And Timothy, remind them once again. You see, the command remind here is in what's called the present imperative. That means Timothy is to keep on reminding them of these things. That is why we as preachers of the Word of God keep reminding you over and over again of the basics of the Word of God, of the Gospel. We need it, and you need it. Preachers need it. Congregations need it. You will hear it from Brad. You will hear it from Phil. You will hear it from me and from many of the others that will preach. It will be repeated. And if you and I and all of the men that preach get it down with full obedience and no failure, you know what? I'm going to preach it again. We're going to remind you again. It is worth reminding because the Word of God is powerful. And the good news of Jesus Christ is the glory of God. And thirdly, we're commanded to. We will repeat and we will remind of the essentials of the gospel over and over again. It is the key to life. But he tells Timothy, after you remind them, I want you to charge them. Charge them. Paul is commanding Timothy to warn the church of very real potential disaster. Charge them, it says, before God. Now we always know that God is with us. He is omnipresent. So we're never without God, so to speak. But Timothy is being given this charge with a greater accountability and in, in a, a very so heavy soberness. Timothy, I'm telling you this in the presence of God. There is no greater accountability than before the living God. Now sometimes in Scripture, when it talks about being before God, it's a real comfort. But actually, more often than not, it carries with it a very solemn responsibility. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, Paul wrote, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at His appearing and His kingdom. He really kind of piles it on in that statement. It's not only before God. It's before God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And this Lord Jesus Christ, He will judge. He will judge the living and He will judge the dead. And He will judge them at His appearance, at His return, and in His kingdom. It's before God. In 2 Thessalonians verse one, or chapter 1, Verse 9, he writes, These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. You see, this charge that Timothy is to give his people is not just between Timothy and the people. Not at all. This charge is between the hearer and God. And these charges from Scripture, if, if we could get me out of the way, and you can listen to what the Word of God is saying. Let the Spirit speak to you. This is far more than me going on up here. This is from God. 
the Word of God speaking to you. This is before the presence of God. When you are charged from Scripture, it's a very, very solemn thing. So whatever Paul is going to say here must have some extreme importance. And what could that be? What is the essence of what he's warning about? He says here, Do not strive about words to no profit. Striving about words, literally, that could be translated word battles. A war of words. Do not wrangle or quarrel about trifling matters. Weist, one of the commentators, phrases it that way. These trifling, empty matters, which only result in no profit. In other words, such argument is useless and it has no value. Now seriously, think about this with me. Doesn't that seem a little over the top? Not to commit adultery, I can understand. Not to murder, that would be obvious. Not to steal, not to covet. Those are certainly serious concerns. But, but word battles? How could that be so severe? Well, what would make such a thing like that so dangerous? Well, Proverbs 14 warns us. It says, leave the presence of a fool or you will not discern words of knowledge. You get wrapped up in these things and you start to lose discernment and wisdom. Another commentator wrote, arguing with false teachers, in other words, deceivers who use human reason to subvert God's word, is not only foolish and futile, but it is dangerous. Another reason why we see this as so important is because Paul repeats this warning over and over again in these pastoral letters. When he writes to Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 16, as we'll look at in a little bit, says, But avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness. 2 Timothy chapter 2, 23, But refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce quarrels. In his first letter, chapter 6, verses 3 through 5, Paul wrote, If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing. But he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words, out of which, out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. Now we studied that back several weeks ago. These men were in it for profit, financial gain, and they loved the challenge. They loved the disputing. They loved the division, the chaos it would cause. Now, not only does Paul frequently and emphatically repeat this type of warning, but he goes on to say that entering into word battles with these false teachers results in, it's the Greek word, katastrophe. Now, you tell me, what English word is that? It's where we get, obviously, the English word catastrophe. It's translated here as ruin, spiritual disaster. Uh, the word is used one other time. It's in Second Peter chapter 2, verse 6. And look at the heaviness of this. It says, And he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to catastrophe, destruction. 
disaster by reducing them to ashes. That's how serious Paul is taking these arguments with these false teachers, this empty chatter. Now, do not misunderstand this passage, and I think it's easy to do here. Paul was more than ready to enter into battle when the gospel was at stake. He adamantly rebuked the Galatians for their twisting of the gospel. He even pulled the apostle Peter aside, and he publicly reprimanded him. And do you know why? Because when the legalists from Jerusalem came down, these Jewish legalists, out of fear, he began to shun his love, his association with the Gentiles. He wanted to be conformed to the desires of the men and not of God. He was twisting it and Paul didn't leave it there. He jumped in there and and reprimanded him and, and praised God for that. And I'm sure Peter eventually praised God for that. So Paul was up for a fierce fight for truth many times. So why not this case? Well, Hendrickson, I think, gives a clear understanding. He says, Paul is referring, of course, to the quarrels arising from investigations into endless myths and genealogies and profane and old womanish myths. End quote. These, he said, are not things to argue about. Fights over non-biblical man-made issues like these never end. And they profit no one. And I imagine that you've been in these as well. You come from a biblical foundation and this is your truth. And this is where you stand. And you're in some sort of an argument about a a certain thing going on around us. Whether it's moral issues, ethical issues, spiritual issues of some kind. And you're basing your foundation of your argument on what God has said. And they're over here saying, I would never listen to that thing in a million years. This is simply the word of man. Why would we have anything to do with that? And, and so, in many times, you never come to any kind of a progress. And one side leaves the other and thinks, ah, what a mess, either side. But it, but it is not always easy, it's not always certain to know when to enter in and when not to. It takes much prayer, but what we don't often realize is that if you do enter in, you must enter in with caution. Because there are many things at stake. Spiritual catastrophe. Ruin. Disaster. But you know it does little good to simply tell someone what they should not do and leave it at that. There must be something to fill the void left by getting rid of evil. We know how this works. As parents, as individuals, as we personally struggle against sin and temptation, we need to replace it with Christ in some way. For example... Excessive screen time and internet. Excessive eating. Laziness. Pride. Lust. Anger. Gossip. Slander. If you just work to get rid of these, the vacuum left will suck in something else from the world. When you remove something from the flesh, you must put something of the Lord in its place. The principle is, is in many places in the scriptures. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 22, it says that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts and be renewed in the spirit of your mind and that you put on the new man 
which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. In Romans chapter 13, verse 12, it says, Therefore let us cast off the work of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. In a very practical sense, what is Paul telling Timothy? In contrast to entering into these kind of debates, he says to him, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God. A worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. It is a command to spiritual skill in God's word. A spiritual skill in God's word. Be diligent, Timothy. Diligent. Now, very few of you probably will remember the acronym MTXE. Anybody remember that? A few of you do. It was popular on banners and t-shirts and bumper stickers all over the city of Wichita during the glory years of Wichita State University basketball in the early 1980s. What did it stand for? Any maximum toughness? Extra effort. Now, I guess MTEE didn't have quite the same bite. So it was MTXE, maximum toughness, extra effort. This was the coach's way of driving the team towards really diligence. Driving them towards diligence. Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines diligence as steady, earnest, and energetic effort. End quote. Diligence is devoted and painstaking work to accomplish a task. Paul tells Timothy to give absolute maximum effort and painstaking faithfulness in order to do what? To present himself. Now this is, this is a beautiful picture here. That word present himself literally, literally means to stand alongside. Stand alongside. To stand alongside who and how. Present himself, stand alongside, approved to God. Approved means to be tested through trial and proven authentic. The diligent man of God... Timothy said, is like a worker, a worker for God who does not need to be ashamed. Guthrie describes shame as the shame that any workman feels when the incompetence of shoddiness of his work is detected. No one wants to be embarrassed by a lack of faithfulness. A follower of Christ avoids this. How does he do that? He does this by rightly dividing the word of truth. And this word, rightly dividing, is orthotom eo, and it combines two words. It's a compound word. Or ortho, which we've talked about before, an orthodontist does what? He straightens your teeth. An orthopedist does what? He tries to straighten little boys' legs like Benjamin so that they're true and they will work well. Ortho means straight. The second part of that word is tomoteros, which means to cut. As a teacher of God's word, we are to cut it straight when it comes to the gospel, when it comes to the word of God. The word of truth includes the gospel. Ephesians 1 verse 13 we read, In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Colossians 1.5 says, Because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of the truth, Of the gospel. 
as well as the gospel. It's the whole counsel of God throughout His inspired word. Jesus said in John 17, 17, Sanctify, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. So we are to cut it straight. We are to get it right. You know, when I was a, a young fellow, I, I, was, I think it was 8th or ninth grade, I began to work for a farmer for a summer. And I was put in this field with this big tractor and a disc behind me, and I was supposed to disc this field. And I don't know whether I did it right, Mark, or the, the Booznitz boys, but I started in the middle, and I headed down to the other end of the field. And then I came back and came down the other side, and I was trying to be very careful. And I was watching as I was going and where the disc was and everything. And after I'd been doing it for a while, the farmer arrived and, and he pulled me out of the tractor and we went back to the edge of the field and he said, you see this? And I knew it was supposed to be a straight line and I was trying. But that line just curved all the way around and came back to the other point like a big rainbow. And I just didn't know what I was doing. And I had done shoddy work. And I was ashamed of that. I mean, I, I was embarrassed. Ah. And he got me straightened out. He said, what you do is you start here and you keep your eye on the prize at the end of the field. And that will lead you straight to the other end. Now, I guess you don't have to worry about that because you have GPS. So. <laughs> but uh, I, was, I remember feeling just embarrassed. I mean, here I was. I've been working hard on this. And I thought I was doing a good job. And I looked at my work and it was shoddy. I don't want my work for God to be shoddy. I want to be diligently committed with MTXE in the Word of God. As a preacher of the gospel, Timothy was instructed by Paul to disregard the approval of men. Disregard your own self-approval. That is a tragic thing in the culture in which we live. Oftentimes people will say, well, as long as you're happy with yourself, that's all that matters. That isn't all that matters. What matters is are you approved unto God? Be approved unto God. In Galatians 1, verse 10, Paul wrote, Do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I still pleased men, I would not be a servant of Christ, a slave of Christ. 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 4, But as we have been approved by God, to be entrusted with the gospel. Even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. Now Timothy begins to look at the effect of the careless debate and godless babble. What does it lead to? In verse 16 we look at the steps of decay into spiritual ruin. Verse 16 reads, But shun profane and idle babblings, for they will increase to more ungodliness. This word shun means to avoid. avoid. Uh, one of the commentators writes it's to give them a wide berth. Stay away. Don't go anywhere near them. As elders, we were recently asked for counsel regarding a person who has demonstrated a history of dishonesty and division in several churches. Actually, we were asked on two different occasions a few months apart. Our advice to that questioner was stay far away from that man. Paul commands Timothy here, put great distance, stay far away between you and those who practice profane, idle babblings. One of our translations says wordless and empty 
godless chatter. It's similar to the warning given in verse 14. It says, such aimless godless prattle is like planting a seed that will increase. That word means to drive forward, to advance, to grow. Literally, it means open pasture. To increase a wide open pasture. A space where what will grow? Right here it says ungodliness. Ungodliness will grow and it will flourish. First of all, it tells us more ungodliness. This is really key. More in quantity and in quality. The ungodliness growing out of that open pasture of profane babbling will increase in its frequency, meaning it will happen more often, as well as plunge to greater depths of perversion. It will get worse and worse. Paul knew this danger was present in Ephesus as well as in Rome where he was awaiting his beheading. My question is, is that the only place it exists? Do you see the parallel? Is the ungodliness of American culture as well as much of the American evangelical church not growing just as Paul describes? Ungodliness is exploding in frequency and depth. Now here are a few examples to make us think. Some of these will be obvious and a few will make us uncomfortable. This list is not about the secular culture we see plummeting to depths, depths of evil we never have imagined. This is about the perversion within the church of our Lord Jesus Christ among self-confessed evangelicals. One, adultery and sexual misconduct, including sexual abuse that is responded to softly and quickly swept aside. Another one, the proliferation and ease of divorce. It is rampant. Another, the approval of homosexuality and other gross sexual perversion, benignly labeled with letters, LGBTQIA2+. At this point, these sinful lifestyles are not only accepted within many, within many churches, they are even desired for diversity and leadership. Acceptance and tolerance of the murder of preborn children, called abortion. Worship services that manifest sensuality and the glory of man rather than God. Grossly extravagant lifestyles of men and women purporting to be God's prophets. A steep downgrade in reading, studying, memorizing, and applying the Word of God. In other words, very few of us being diligent to present ourselves approved to God, unashamed workers, rightly handling the Word of Truth. We have no time. A reluctance on the part of us naming the name of Christ to pray or meet to pray fervently, often. Little interest. An absence of the proclamation of the gospel. An unwillingness to tell the world that Jesus saves and they need Him. Perhaps little passion and courage. The impacts are everywhere. And Paul says, this message is not, or their message of these false teachers, this prattle, this godless chatter, 
is not only destructive, but it will spread like cancer. Paul compares it actually to gangrene. Many of your translations actually use that word, gangrene. The Mayo Clinic gives this description. Gangrene is death of body tissue due to a lack of blood flow or a serious bacterial infection. Gangrene commonly affects the arms and legs, including the toes and fingers. It can also occur in the muscles and in organs inside the body, such as the gallbladder. If the germs that cause the gangrene spread through the body, a condition called septic shock can occur. In other words, gangrene spreads quickly and thoroughly throughout the body and can easily kill. The message that comes from these false teachers will spread like gangrene. To show the embodiment of this danger, look what Paul does. He is really driving this home. First he speaks of gangrene, and now he says, let me point out a couple of examples that you know well, Timothy. Hymenaeus and Philetus, they are of this sort. They are exactly what I am warning you about. Hymenaeus was one of those enemies of the truth that just would not go away. He appears twice in Paul's letters as a dangerous false teacher. And that is even after Paul has previously removed him from the church. He's still out there battling. Then we have Philetus, and he's only mentioned once in Scripture. It's right here. He may have taken the place of Hymenaeus' earlier accomplice by the name of Alexander. But it's not just these two guys. Look what it says there. Hymenaeus and Philetus are two guys from among them. Evidently, there was a gang of false teachers, several that were going after the church this way. So what was up with these guys? Why the zeal to give this false message? Well, verse 18 tells us that this is what happens when you have strayed concerning the truth. Specifically, they say that the resurrection is already passed. And they overthrow the faith of some. They have strayed. They have swerved from the truth. Now what do we know when we use that word? In order to swerve off the road, you had to what? You had to have been on it at some point. These men were at one point right on track. And at some point, they began to swerve and depart from the roadway. And who knows what took hold. I remember coming back from Heston one evening after visiting my parents. Uh, My mother was... uh, very old and was struggling in health and it had rained and it was icy. And I was coming up on the on-ramp, wasn't paying attention, and my left side or the right side of my tire slipped over off the edge of that uh, on-ramp and propelled me down that ditch, down and spinning around, and I ended up at the bottom of the ditch just outside of Heston uh, off of I-35. I had swerved from the center of that road to the side And something had caught me and thrown me down in there. Spiritually, the same thing happens. You begin to mess with the truth and to swerve and entertain ideas that are not from the Word of God. And before you know it, you get a little to the edge and then something grabs and you are gone. We have seen that many times in the last decade of men that were leading like these guys. These guys have swerved from the truth. 
They have missed the mark. They have deviated. Another term for this is that they have apostatized. That's where we get that term. They're described in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 6. And we look at this often as we're in 2 Timothy. The writer of Hebrews said, For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. These are guys that were right in the middle of things. They were in the thick of it. If they fall away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and they put Him to an open shame. There is no other gospel. It is hopeless for them at that time. Unless they would repent and believe in the Christ that they have despised, they will never, never be rescued. Deconstructionists are everywhere. Red letter guys who push aside the Bible. Some of the uh, large denominations who push aside the words of Paul. It, it's prolific out there. Evangelicals. Evangelicals, listen to this please. And I say this not to be offensive, but if it offends, I hope it's, I hope it's for the Lord. Evangelicals not satisfied with the Word of God. In their swerve from truth, they are actually signaling that the Bible is not sufficient. It is not sufficient. They want something more. Like a fresh word from the Lord. A modern day prophecy. They would like a nice contemporary supplement to Scripture. Maybe not bold enough to equate it with the Word of God. But certainly a nice modern addition. Something to enhance those stodgy ancient old writings. This practice of the insufficiency of God's Word has produced an explosion of books television shows and series, movies and ministries advocating new, unique additions to admittedly good but insufficient scriptures. It is said by some that we need more to fill in between the lines that scripture doesn't tell us about. Or some creative license to catch people's attention and bring them back to the Bible. Be very, be very, very cautious of these things. Second Peter chapter 1 writes, Peter wrote in verse 3, Seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. For by these He has granted to us His precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Now for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is a long passage. 
But I encourage you to take that home and look at it. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3-8. through 8. We have everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of Him who called us. And Paul sets out, or excuse me, Peter sets out for him an assignment. Add to this. Work to this. Add to this. And see what God will do. And He will make you useful. And you will be fruitful in your knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what is it that Hymenaeus and Philetus and the gang are actually teaching? It tells us here that they say the resurrection has already passed. Well, what does that mean? Well, it's actually not real clearly spelled out here. But most of the commentators would agree that it doesn't seem like it could mean the resurrection of Jesus Christ is past because Paul and Timothy and the church would agree that is a done deal. Jesus has already risen from the dead. It also can't mean that the bodily resurrection of believers in Christ had already taken place. Otherwise, the false teachers would be saying that they themselves had missed it. So what's going on here? The message of the apostate leaders seems to be here that the resurrection has already taken place because it is a spiritual process, but not really a physically physical bodily resurrection. To be resurrected to them was to be united with Christ spiritually. Now, let, let's join in there. In Romans chapter 6, verses 4 through 8, we find the spiritual resurrection is true. Let me just read those. Therefore, we have been buried with Him, Jesus, through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead to the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with Him in the likeness of His death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of His resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with Him, in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with Him. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave Himself for me. So there is a resurrection spiritually. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. So there is a spiritual resurrection that comes when we come to Christ. We have been given newness of life. But if that was all the resurrection was about, it would do exactly what Paul says here. That would overthrow the faith. That would overthrow the faith of some. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. That word overthrow the faith means to overturn or to undermine the authority and power of their faith. How could these men, making this statement, have such a devastating impact? How could it overthrow? Let Paul answer this in 1 Corinthians 15. And we'll start with verse 12. But if Christ has preached that He has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? See, this was a, seems to have been a common theme among false teachers. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty. And your faith is also empty. 
Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that He raised up Christ, whom He did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. If, if this is all we're living for, Paul falls very bold. He said, then we should be pitied. Because there's a great day coming. It'll be a day of a new body. It'll be a resurrection. After Paul describes such danger and extreme warning, Hendrickson asks a very penetrating question. This, maybe this has crossed your mind. Does this mean then that God's true church can be destroyed? Can be overthrown? Paul answers in verse 19 this morning. Nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands, having this seal. The Lord knows those who are His, and let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. It's the sure foundation, and it should be, the word should be described in God's word. The sure foundation described in God's word. A solid foundation of God. The foundation spoken of here is believed by most interpreters to be the church. God's elect sons and daughters. 1 Timothy chapter 3, 15 says, But if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourselves in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. This foundation of God's people, it says it's absolutely firm. It stands. It does not wobble. It does not fade. And placed on the cornerstone of that structure of God's people, is a very important symbol of ownership. Paul refers to this as the seal. This word seal appears 26 times in the New Testament. It is the Greek word sfragizo, and it means to stamp or a signet or a private mark. And that private mark is to indicate security, preservation, and authenticity. Spiritually, sfragizo proclaims ownership. It is God's guarantee of His own children. In Paul's era, a seal of ownership was often found engraved in a cornerstone at the, on a particular large building, perhaps in Jerusalem. It would give who that building belonged to and perhaps the date of when it was constructed. At the Sterling United Methodist Church there in Sterling, I saw that as I walked through the front doors. It gave the name of the church and the date when the church was first built and then it gave the date here when it was remodeled. But we know who it belongs to with that stone seal on there. That's what Paul's talking about here. This seal on God's people has two parts. One side of this coin of God's ownership is the sovereignty of God and the other is the responsibility of man. The sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. Firstly, the Lord intimately knows you see, God does not discover that a man is his after finally observing that man's behavior. He does not look down through the annals of time, present or future, past, and see and decide. 
Neither does a man establish or redeem or somehow birth himself to God, making himself a son of God. The Lord does this. It is of His will, and it is beyond the annals of time and the power of man. Romans chapter 9, verse 15, 16 says, For He says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then it is not of him who wills nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. And if you think that means God is picking out the best of the bunch, you go back to Romans chapter 5 and you realize he says, God demonstrates his kind of love to us that while we were still sinners, that is when Christ died for us. It's not when we had cleaned up our act or turned the corner into sanctification. It was when we were filthy. When we were rebellious, it goes on to say in verse 10 in Romans 5, that while we were enemies of Christ, He died for us. God makes that decision of His own will. John 10, verses 27 through 28 says, My sheep hear My voice, and I know them. And they follow Me, and I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of My hand. God is also not simply knowingly aware. When it says He knows, it doesn't mean that, oh yeah, I I recognize them. Yeah, that guy's one of mine. It's an intimacy there. It's an intimacy that's even used of a husband with his wife. He knows us deeply. And He is the only one who really does. I may be very confident of a man's heart because of the fruit I've seen on the outside. However, I have been sorely disappointed by many a Christian leader who I looked up to and over a period of time turned out to be a wolf in sheep's clothing, one of those men who swerved to the side and went down into the ditch. But the Lord clearly and intimately knows that man's heart. God is not negligent nor ignorant in any way. Jeremiah 17 verse 9, The heart is deceitful above all things. It's desperately wicked. Who can know it? I the Lord, I the Lord search the heart. I test the mind, even to give every man according to his way, according to the fruit of his doings. Acts 15.8 So God who knows the heart, and very soberly, He also knows those who are not His. He knows His, and in Matthew 7 verse 21, we read, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Cast out demons in your name? Do many wonders in your name? Didn't we do those things? And he says, and then I will proclaim to them, I never knew you. I never knew you. Depart from me. The second part of the ownership of God is the believers faithfully departing from wickedness. The responsibility of man toward God. We must depart. There is no hypocrisy. We read one of the big themes in 1 Timothy was hypocrisy, hypocrisy, hypocrisy. God will not tolerate hypocrisy in His people. We cannot name the name of Christ and live for Kent. To live for Brent. To live for Dan. We cannot do that. We must name the name of Christ and live for Him. As important as it is to realize the sovereignty of the Lord in choosing and knowing who are His, 
It is just as important that we realize our responsibility to live in obedience to the one who has called us. I did not read the final phrase of Matthew 7.23. There Christ gives the reputation of the one to whom he declares, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity, you who practice lawlessness, you who live in sin, essentially. I never knew you. Lawlessness or iniquity in a believer blasphemes God. And it ruins the faith of some, writes Paul. In the London Baptist Confession, there's a very helpful, which is a very helpful and carefully crafted commentary on the Scriptures, we find this insight on the explanation of the role and importance of the responsibility of good works before God. Help, this helps us put it into right perspective. perspective. Chapter 16, paragraph 2, it says, These good works done in obedience to God's commandments, are the fruit and evidence of a true and living faith. Through good works, believers express their thankfulness, strengthen their assurance, build up their brothers and sisters, adorn the profession of the gospel, stop the mouths of opponents, and glorify God. Believers are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, so that they bear fruit, leading to holiness, and have the outcome, eternal life. And then in chapter 17, it speaks of the perseverance of the saints. Those God has accepted in the beloved, effectually called and sanctified by His Spirit, and given the precious faith of His elect, can neither totally nor finally fall from a state of grace. They will certainly persevere in grace to the end and be eternally saved, because the gifts and callings of God are irrevocable. Therefore, He still brings about and nourishes in them faith, repentance, love, joy, hope, and all the graces of the Spirit that lead to immortality. Even though many storms and floods arise and beat against them, yet these things will never be able to move the elect from the foundation and rock to which they are anchored by faith. The felt sight of the light and love of God may be clouded and obscured from them for a time through their unbelief and the temptations of Satan. Did you get that? It can be difficult. You can be tempted. You can be pulled away for a time. Yet God is still the same. They will certainly be kept by the power of God for salvation, where they will enjoy their purchased possession. For they are engraved on the palm of His hands, and their names have been written in the book of life from all eternity. Your name, as we sang in one of the hymns this morning, is written on His hand. That is how intimately He knows you. He knows you through and through, and not just intellectually. He knows you and loves you and has engraved you as His possession on His hand. In conclusion, I would say this. As we know, much of this is written from Paul to Timothy to pass on to other leaders in the church. Men who teach, be on guard. Be on guard as to what theological or philosophical word battles you may enter into. And this goes for everyone. Be very cautious about the constant word battles conducted on the internet. Videos, blogs, and podcasts may provide good insights, but they are also potential tar pits for believers to fall into and stick fast. Beware of those who seem to know the latest theological twist or argument but don't seem to be able to find time to diligently study God's Word 
to present themselves approved to God. Especially beware if that happens to be you. Commit yourself, commit yourself, brothers and sisters, to MTXE in service to Christ and knowing His Word. Don't just think about it. Don't just think about it. Plan and execute how you will become such a man and woman approved to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that we can't keep ourselves in Your grace and we can't enter into it except for the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed to purchase us and to, with, and to hold us, to keep us. But Father, You have called us to glorify Your name. You've called us to leave sin and walk with You. Your Word often talks about the healthiness of Your commands. And it often talks about the things like gangrene of disobedience and false teaching. Lord, help us to hold fast to the healthy Word of God, the sound teaching, and to dwell with You richly. Lord, please forgive us so much of the time we, we hold back from You. We, we, we like a little bit more sleep. We like a little bit longer on this show. We like a little bit longer in digging into this new idea. And we feel so free to put aside you and time with you in prayer and in your word. Lord, I don't, I don't want to be a legalist in this, but, but I want us to be ones who love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. I want that, Lord. I fail in the same things that my brothers and sisters do. Lord, purify us. Bring us near to you. Make us to be soldiers, athletes, hardworking farmers that will bring glory to your name in this little bit of time that we have left. Lord, be glorified by this body of believers. And Lord, for those this morning that have not entered into relationship with you, I pray that you would convict them, that you would take the stony hard heart from their life and give them a new heart. They would repent and follow Jesus. Lord, you are worthy for eternity and we look forward to your return. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.